everyone. Welcome to welcome to the book club on Unsafe Space. Uh, I am Carter Laren. Today is I don't know what day it is. It's Sunday, February, February 2nd. <laughs> it's Super Bowl scary. Sunday. Oh yeah. There's the the sporting event that's happening today. And, the sporting um, event. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're here to talk about Fahrenheit 451 instead. So welcome. Thank you everyone for joining and for the people who are here uh, on the video panel. I don't know what we call it. The group of people who are willing to be seen and heard. Hey guys, we've got, uh, who do we have? We've got Tamara. We have uh Dr. K, the good doctor. Carlin. Carlin is Carlin. fine. <laughs> <laughs> We've got Nicole of the Mountain People, and we have Thomas. Hello, everyone. You, did you ever see Romper Room, Carrie, when you were a kid? Mm -mm. Oh. No. You reminded me of Romper Room, where they like, at the, in the end of the show, the host would hold up, it was for kids. She would hold up like a magnifying glass and look at the, uh, camera and and say a bunch of like generic names like i see johnny and janie and like and kids would be like oh she sees me uh, <laughs> for some reason that reminded me of what you're just doing a quick uh, look into uh, carter's childhood yeah, yeah you don't want to know about my childhood buddy it's, it's not it's not a pretty sight um i'm gonna carry i'm hoping that um you can lead a little bit i was out yeah. until i was out until four with mikey and I am oh, wow. yeah. tired and my voice hurts and uh, it was good, but. Um, yeah, of course. Probably so I just, mind. well, let's get right into it because people are giving up their Sunday night uh, to be here. So uh, this month's book club, uh, we read Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, which uh, this is another one of those books. I'm so glad we decided to do this one because I, I, you know, I had a memory of it from childhood, but it's so different reading it as an adult. And uh, I'm kind of blown away by it. I think I saw some of the, some people online and even maybe some people in chat who were talking about how it um, in some ways is even more startling than the other two books that the other two books of fiction we've read so far for book club, uh, Brave New World and 1984. Somebody said it has our number even better, mm -hmm. right? I, you know what, I, I tend to agree. There were some parts in it that I was like, wow, he predicted the psychological state of people in an interesting way. Um, yes. It was, it was like, yeah, quite, quite fascinating. I don't know where you want to start, Carrie, but um, maybe we can just like see if anyone else has any comments before we- Let's start of... with just general, general uh, feelings about the book. I loved it. Yeah. What did you guys think? Yeah. As an engineer, I noticed the technology that he predicted. There's lists of inventions from Star Trek that were invented because of Star Trek, but it's rarer to have a science fiction author come up with ideas of technology that actually come true that was not specifically inspired by the book. From my list, he predicted wireless earbuds big screen TVs and the automated you know, Scientific American had an article last year. Don't let the robots kill. You know, don't have robots kill people. The hound is this, okay, it looks like a dog and it's a walking drone. 
but it's hunting for the target and it has permission to either maim or kill you based on what's in charge. He predicted killer drones. Yeah. Yeah. It's the Boston uh, Dynamics dogs, basically, too. Yeah. Yeah. What everybody else think? I I think I was so surprised because I hadn't read it. I mean, it was assigned in high school to other classes. Um, but so I think I've kind of been on the lookout more for 1984. So that just has always been in my general, you know, view. And then reading, not even reading, I cheated and listened to it. And that's um, not cheating, I, Nicole. That I don't regret. I listened to the one that Tim Robbins uh, narrated, and it was beautiful. Like of all of the trilogy, I found it the most beautiful and poetic. And and I don't know if that was because of the performance by Tim Robbins. I'll jump in here and say I loved it. It's not just, so I, I did both. I have the book for sitting and reading when I have time. And then when I'm cleaning or something, I listen to the audio version, I just pick up. So I heard the Tim Robbins version too. And, it, and I thought the same thing. It's not just that, even when you're reading it, the written word, I think he's just got a really, he's got a really beautiful use of language. He's, he's almost like a poet in some ways. Yeah, and, and I also poetry he, in it. Yeah, there's poetry in it. And he's very efficient with language. Like the book is kind of short and it's yeah, not any short. longer than it needs to be. He's just very efficient. But that's my opinion based on what you're saying about, was it just the Tim Robbins? I don't think so. I think he's like, just got a really good, um, he's an artist with language. And then being just like shocked at how much it resonated with me with so many of the things that we find in our modern world that, you know, I kind of look for, for when I look at, you know, for big brother stuff. But then listening to the book, and I wish I would have had a paper copy next to me so I could have written notes like as stuff was happening. Because um, there's a so lot. I'm having quotes. a hard time like <laughs> recalling which parts of it were resonated so much with me. But even like the description of, of people, you know, turning gray and they're like, gray eyes and their gray skin it just reminded me of like the npc meme yeah. and how right on that is but yeah pretty much anytime there were like the long talks by either faber or um i can't remember his name Beatty. Beatty. yeah the chief Beatty. just really like powerful and eye-opening so i hope everybody else underlined all that stuff and can remind me later I did take some notes on those talks, Nicole, because um, the thing that struck me the most, like people credit Andrew Breitbart with this idea that politics is downstream of culture, but this was clearly Ray Brad Bradbury's message. And the few quotes that I have from Beatty about that, where he he says, "It didn't, in my in my book, it, I have this version. It was page fifty five, um, but he says." Uh, it didn't come down, it didn't come from government down. There was no dictum, no declaration, no censorship to start with, no. And then later on he says, colored people, then he, then he talks about victimhood culture like really well. He says, colored people didn't like little black Sambo, burn it. White people don't feel good about Uncle Tom's cabin, burn it. Someone's written a book on tobacco and cancer of the lungs, the cigarette people are weeping, burn the book. It's like, 
Th- yeah. That's exactly the mentality that we're in right now. Exactly. That's my highlight of it right there. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I was like, yes, it, w- it was so crazy that it, it seemed like um, so many things that he did predict, um, not just the technology, I kept picking up on that, but that was, I think that was even more telling the fact that he was able to look at human nature, understand human nature and figure, well, if this is the direction that you go, this is where you will end up. And that's why I love learning about all this ancient wisdom, because it keeps telling me that if you, that human nature itself doesn't change much if it changes at all. So if you pay attention to this stuff um, and you see what's going on now, you can know what's going to go on um, in the future. Yeah. To that, to that point, Thomas, the, about human nature not changing at all, um, I also underline the part towards the end where he's talking about the phoenix, where the, the, one of the, um, the, the bums, <laughs> the walking library people says, mm-hmm. uh, you there know was a silly... Oh, uh, in this version that Carter has, I have the same one, it's page 156. And he says, there's a silly damn bird called a phoenix back before Christ. And every few hundred years, he built a pyre and burned himself up. He must have been first cousin to man. But every time he burned himself up, he sprang up out of the ashes. He got himself born all over again. And it looks like we're doing the same thing over and over. But Mm -hmm. we've got one damn thing the phoenix never had. We know the damn silly thing we just did. We know all the damn silly things we've done for a thousand years. And as long as we know that and always have it around where we can see it, someday we'll stop making the goddamn funeral pyres and jumping in the middle of them. And that just that just stuck with me because like you said, it's human nature. I'm continually reminded that word you used, ancient wisdom. I'm, I keep being reminded lately about how none of this is news. But why can't we, like you said, we have, we know we have history. Why aren't we learning from it? Yeah. I underlined some of the same stuff on the same page. Uh, specifically, we went right on insulting the dead. We went right on spitting in the graves of all the poor ones who died before us. So all the people who kept telling us, oh, I'll write this down to make sure you guys don't screw up again. Here we are like, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yep. The new time, new people, things are changing, you know, here and now it's like, eh. I don't know if there's any such things here and now because whatever we think is here and now is built on whatever came before us and it's just a reflection of that same stuff happening in a new time because we haven't changed we just have a lot of things that have changed around us and it you know you mentioned the kind of permanence of human psychology there was another passage earlier um that was brief but it's basically the summary of the same thing he says uh faber is talking and he says those who don't build must burn. It's as old as history and juvenile delinquents. And it's like, such a, it's such a funny way to look at it. Like, oh, you build or you burn. Like, those are the things that you do. And, yeah. and it it act- we, I'm sorry, it reminded me of something we kind of chatted about on Facebook, where I said something like, I wonder if any leftist has gone throughout history and actually come up and um, did some what they were thought was going to be deconstruction. It was like, oh no, wow, this is actually great. And instead of burning everything to the ground, it was like, oh wow, <laughs> no, it's always burning. It's never like it wow, made me. It do. totally made me think of yesterday, Carter and Scott Pressler's cleanup. Oh yeah, and that was like, so weird. And you know them protesting, cleaning mm. up, and activating and doing something positive. Yeah. And just standing there screaming at them 
And I was just like, they're just burning rather than building a better place, which yeah. led me into this whole other rabbit hole of like, who's truly compassionate? How can you let people live like this in your city? Which is another discussion we'll have another time. Sorry. No, actually, um, Nicole, it is like, not only did they burn in that way, but the justification they gave for canceling the venue was that they were disparaging homeless people because they were cleaning up after them. Which, Which is, is why I brought it up. Because you were there. At, yeah. It was nuts. Yeah. But there was Ray Bradbury right there, less than 24 hours ago. <laughs> hey, so I wanted to say, well, hi to Keith for joining us. Keith the Hat Guy's here. Nice hat, sir. Hey, Keith. And um, I wanted to hear from Keith and also Carlin, if you want, if you guys want to say what you think about the book. Carlin's also wearing her uh, Make Speech Free Again hat. I love it. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I wanted to read this book because I hated this book in high school for some reason. I don't even actually think I finished it in high school because I think I was really bored by it at the time. And so I was excited to take another look at it. And I also think the original movie which is far superior to the remake that HBO did. But I think I tried to watch that at one point. And once they got to like the cheesy fire truck, I was like, no, out, done. Um, but I was, it was like terrifying for me to read the book now in the current context. And, you know, I, I completely agree with everything everyone said so far. I did the audio version too. So, so I'm definitely gonna get the car copy and underline it. Um, but the thing I think that stood out to me that we haven't talked about yet, and maybe it's just because like I'm a knitter, is the absolute vitriol and like pleasure and joy they took in burning the books. Like yes. it was like an emotional pleasure. And that's something I think we've seen over and over and over again in knitting when people have been attacked and mobbed. It's just like, they're not doing it just to make a point. Most of the time, they don't even care about whatever cause they're advocating for. It's just the joy of attacking someone. Yeah. And I think he even mentioned in the book, like he hadn't even considered that someone maybe spent their whole life, like figuring out what to write and wrote this book. He just was enjoying dousing them with kerosene and like the sensual behavior of burning the book was what his focus was, not really on what he was doing. They're pyromaniacs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. the fact that there's a whole person behind it who spent so however many, you know, years pouring out his thoughts and and recording them for the rest of us to read and then you can light it up like that and erase it. And it, that is a great point. I do think there's a lot of joy again talking going back to human nature doesn't change i think that there is a part of human nature that people can choose to succumb to if they want to that takes great joy in in uh destroying others and just destruction just burning like you said you're either building or burning and and maybe it's not the people who enjoy burning whatever version burning takes for them it's mobbing on instagram or whatever it's because they're not building anything. It's that resentment, you know, it's that resentment of people uh, who are building. The spider. And out. like, let mm -hmm. me tear them down. That guy's got a book, you know, the knit and nibble. He's got a book and he's doing something and that makes me angry because I'm not doing anything. <laughs> no. You know, my coach compares this to like, um, like crabs trying to crawl out of like a bucket. Like if you if you see a bunch of crabs in like a bucket, there's always some that try to crawl out and escape to freedom. And what happens? The other crabs pull them back in. <laughs> yes Keith what did you think of it oh, oh Keith isn't Keith left he got up and played with his microphone yeah 
He's messing with his camera. He's um, going to burn something. Yeah, he's fed up with all he's this. Building actually. <laughs> so I wanted I felt, to. I felt like, and this is just a personal thing for me, but there were some of the descriptions of kind of the the thoughtless drones that go along with it, like the wife. You know how Mil- Mildred is. Was it was almost painful for me to to listen about her because my previous relationship, I felt like I was in a previous relationship with somebody who's totally happy with just watching TV and getting fed the entertainment and not at all having any sort of uh, introspection or critical thought on what's being shoveled. I mean, I agree with, he agrees with my politics. He sort of has his like, you know, he has his ideas and they're stuck there and there's never any other movement forward or introspection and just like, in fact, he installs audio video video equipment. So if there was a room that had three walls of screen and complete immersive interaction, he would definitely be installing the fourth wall. He, he would live in that room. <laughs> he absolutely would. Like Not, he's a great dad yeah. and he's a good person. But at the same time, I'm like, there are so many people that really are just stuck right there that never pick up a book. Never. I think that's the default, right? I'm, I, like, I, I don't know, Nicole. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because there's another passage that I um, underlined here, which was... Um, he was complaining about, he was arguing with Mildred and he said, we need to be really bothered once in a while. How long is it since you were really bothered about something important, about something real? And I feel like that is, um, at least my experience with most people is, it's exactly what you're describing. Um, And someone tweeted the other day, something that's related to this that I hadn't heard before, but I really liked, I'm paraphrasing it, but it was something to the effect of, if you avoid conversations that are about people and you fo- and you listen to conversations and you participate in conversations that are about ideas, you'll save yourself a lot of time and be way happier. And, and I think that's kind of, I, I view a lot of what normal, I normies, like a lot of what is kind of mainstream to talk about is entertainment and gossip and people and nothing actually important. Um, and you could see, the interesting thing to me was that Mildred was like, seems to be fine with it, but yet we know she was suicidal. Like subconsciously right. she wasn't fine with it, but yet she was not really even aware, self-aware enough to know how miserable she was. It was odd, right? Right. That was a beautiful right. piece where he said like that, that Mildred was so deep inside this Mildred that they didn't even know each other. Yes. That was yes. beautiful. Because that Mildred is so, and it, and it also, it does make me think of our culture. It made me think of another line I underlined on page 56. He said, that's all we live for, isn't it? For pleasure, for titillation. And you must admit that our culture provides plenty of these. That was Beatty talking. And and yeah, I think it's so easy to um, just, we. I mean, we've all done, I mean, I assume, because I've done it, I guess I assume other people, it's, all, it's so easy to just go along with the flow of things and just check out and, and that part of you deep down that if you're not really living and you're not really living consciously, I think there is a part of you that's aware of that, that's really unhappy. 
but but I also think that's why you see you see so many look people self-medicating and then and then prescription medicating and people just trying to alleviate that feeling that feeling that the the wife's friend has when she starts crying listening to poetry so just in a super meta moment right here i just have to throw out that the halftime show just ended and it was such (laughs) that you know the girl (laughs) the whole thing dancing but then the two stars and their asses hanging out and and i just want to say you know i think i think we're all really cool that we're like oh it's on super bowl sunday but we're we still want to go talk about this book you know, like when my friends asked me what I was doing, I'm like, I'm going to book club. I've, look, I watched the first part of the Super Bowl before. I think it's, I think it's good to have moments of frivolity. It's just like when you live there exclusively, that's the problem. Exactly. It's, Occasional frivolity. Is that what you're saying, I Carrie? I want to know who wins. <laughs> Occasional frivolity. It's not healthy to have no frivolity, but it's just like Mildred. That's all it is. It's her sitting in a room with her her cigarettes and her talking people, the bunch. By the way, her lines made me laugh out loud, both when I was reading it in the book and especially when I heard Tim Robbins doing it. But there were two different moments where just the juxtaposition that Bradbury does with... Um, just such, oh my gosh, it's just such a beautiful writer where where Montag is saying something, he's having an existential crisis. And he's like, he's like, he's like, don't you see? Like he's talking about the books, don't you see an hour, two days, maybe these books, maybe these books are the solution, da, da, da. And the telephone rings, she goes, and yes, the white cloud is on tonight. Most <laughs> <laughs> important thing. Yeah, it's just like, or there's the time where he pukes and then he says, or he says something another time about like, we burned a woman last night. And she's like, it's a good thing. The rug is water. It's, uh, I can clean the rug, you know, it's stain proof. I'm like, he, he just said he burned a woman, <laughs> but she's so surface level. Her lines are sad, but they're also funny. I don't, I don't know. Did anybody else laugh out loud at her? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I laugh here. <laughs> Well, and the the voice that Tim Robbins did for her was so perfect. I just loved it. I loved the character that he gave to her. And I was like grateful he was reading it to me because I was like, if I had just picked up this book and started reading it, I don't know if I would have been as into it because I don't think that in my mind, I would have given them all such interesting voices. Mm. I'm going to have to go back into the audio now after hearing all of you talking about it. <laughs> Tim Keith, Robinson you're back. We were show. asking you what you thought earlier, but you had stepped away to, I don't know what you were doing with well, your microphone. Can you, can you hear me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what, uh, what were your thoughts on the book? Um, I really enjoyed it. I read it uh, when I was probably eighth grade or something and I really didn't remember it. I remembered the basics, but um the whole the whole concept of just erasing knowledge like that's what it's about like erase all history erase all knowledge erase all thought just live entirely for the moment there are so many people today who live like that like like i meet them all the time there's people that that love that scenario in the book um they're entertained they they want the the 20 foot wide screen like if you told somebody you can have a TV, you don't have to have a 96 inch TV. You can have all four walls of your living room. They'd be like, that's freaking awesome. 
I want to sit there. I want to sit there and watch the view all day on four. <laughs> like that would be like my ideal life. Like, and so I, you know, it's dystopian, but I think there's a lot of people that that want that. You know, when right. they say the, you know, the one quote I put it in the in the um, Facebook group, but I, I have it here on my phone. If you don't want a house built, hide the nails in wood. If you don't want a man unhappy politically, don't give him two sides to a question to worry him. Give him one. Better yet, give him none. Like <laughs> yes. They're saying, they're saying don't, don't let them think about anything. Just keep them totally happy mindset. Don't, no controversy. Um, I think there's some, there's there's millions and millions of people in America who are living this. This is their dream. They love it. And I, I try to, to think, remember that um, I think people like us um, that enjoy ideas aren't that common. And it reminded me of something that I that he said here when he was. Um, I forget. I think it was. Um, he was talking about when he was actually leaving and talking about those people, the way we kind of see them, he says, don't haggle and nag them. You were so recently of them yourself. That totally made me think of Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally a Carrie quote. It really yeah. did. Exactly. And so um, I think it's tough to be in that mindset um, when you're not in that mindset. And even if it's regardless if it's being in social justice or just tuning out, you know, I, there's also different um, personality types that really, really enjoy ideas and some that just do not, regardless of how incredibly smart they are. I have a lot of friends who are really, really smart people and do really great things, whether they're um, PhDs or physicians or whatever, what have you, but they're just not interested in this type of stuff for whatever reason. Yeah. You know, low-res boy in chat, um, is pointing something interesting out, which is we talked, I, I mentioned earlier how um, BD was saying that like this didn't come down from on high, like the people did this on their own. And Lil Rez Boy is pointing out that uh, he says, what's interesting is that you assume that there's a power, there's powers that be in the book, but uh, most of the harm is done from people to people. We don't really even ever find out who's in charge. Like that's that's a good point. Like there's no, like 1984, there's kind of this clear, we know these are the authority people kind of, and, and there's talks about the authorities. Same with um, Brave New World. But there's really no one above the above Beatty in this book. There's no, it's just mental management. We never find out what's going on really at the top because it kind of doesn't matter. It's a grassroots uh, suicide culture, basically. I think they never talk about the government here because the government doesn't matter. The people are totally into it. Like, yeah. yeah, like everybody exactly. loves it. They think this is a great way to run life. This is this is <laughs> yeah. a great that's maybe why they this book has our number more than the other two, because, for example, and you guys know this, when we talk about the censorship and stuff that's happening in in our culture currently um, on social media and how this creep keeps keeps pushing onward. And uh, but it's we're doing it to ourselves. It's not the government, it's social media companies and we're okay with it and we're calling it hate speech and we're saying, and we're making justifications for it because we don't like some of the people that it started with. Oh, well, Alex Jones, sure, you know, ban him, we don't care. And then, it, but it keeps moving, it keeps moving and, and, and we're cool with it. And so I kind of like that, what you guys are pointing out that we don't, yeah, we don't, it, it's not coming from the top down really, it's the people 
people are demanding this. And so society is changing to give the people what they want, which is more censorship. I yeah. think the book really, though, has such a big message that just in the burning of the books, the physical books, with our technology today, how important it is to protect the actual physical books because it's so easy now to change history online, to erase people, to go back in and change articles written. There's no like physical record that can't be erased when we start just relying on, you know, the online New York Times. And then a week later, they're like, oh, well, we were wrong about that. So we're going to kind of fudge some stuff and change it. So, I mean, I think there is just, just the very basic of like protect the books because they can't be changed. And I wonder they, if it's easier to be hasty when you know you can go back and change things. I think you're right. Yeah, of Probably. course. Yeah. Um, by the way, welcome, Chris, who joined us. Hey, we thanks. Gave, hi. We had a, we all just kind of gave a, at the beginning just our basic thoughts on the book. If you want to share yours, no pressure if you don't. Oh, yeah, totally. I loved it. Um, I also did the audio book. I think like it sounds like a lot of other people did. Can you all hear me okay? Yep. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I really loved it. Um, and the sense of like ennui at the beginning, like the sense of like dystopia and self-censorship that you feel like... And Carrie, I love the like hilarious way that Mildred sort of represents. Yeah, she made me laugh a lot too, for sure. Like I wrote down the scene and the part when he's sort of starting to contemplate reading it first. And he says, uh, he wants to like smash things and kill things. And she goes, go into the, go and drive the beetle and go and, <laughs> go and like kill rabbits and hit dogs, take the beetle. And he's like, no, I don't want to. This time I want to hold on to this thing. It's gotten big on me. I don't know what it is. I'm so damned unhappy. I'm so mad. And I don't know why. I feel like I'm putting on weight. I feel fat. I feel like I've been saving up a lot of things and don't know what. I might even start reading books. And then she like pushes back on him and she's like, well, didn't you hear Beatty? He said he has all the answers. He's happy. You know, your happiness is important. Fun is everything. And it really reminded me kind of this dystopia where reading wasn't allowed kind of, of of some friendships I've lost as I've tried to discuss the whole woke issue with people um, that they don't want to hear it. They just want to like pay attention to the entertainment. And <laughs> I don't know, that's that's one thing I took from it for sure. Oh my God, this, this the other day I was discussing Brexit with a few people on Facebook and they were just like, I mean, so down on it. I was like, well, it might be okay. We don't know what's going to happen. And two people at once told me, the uneducated don't know that they don't know how to think critically. And so they need to be guided. I was like, all righty. <laughs> thinking critically or critically thinking? <laughs> yeah. Either or, Isn't really. it weird that those people never wonder if they're the ones that need to be guided? They're always sure that they need to be the ones guiding. Like they never, they don't have the self reflection ever to say, hey, what if I'm the one that this idea that I have about others, what if it applies to me? It's, 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 I don't know, that just, that continues. You know, my mind. it reminds me, Carrie, of this term that, um, I first heard it from someone else, but I heard Michael Malice use it the other day. So I don't know if he invented it, but, um, there's this term midwits and his, his description of a midwit is like 
someone who's like slightly above average intelligence <laughs> and they, it's kind of like being six feet tall. You're never the, you're like, you're above average, but you're never the tallest guy in the room. There's always like someone taller than you. So if you have an opportunity to be the tallest one, like you like really seize it, you like it. And so the midwit is like someone who's above average intelligence and they're really set on sounding really smart and wanting to control everyone because they never feel like they're the smartest one, but they know they're smarter than most people. So they have this uh, desire to really um, basically micromanage what everyone else is doing and control and be like, be that, that what you're talking about, which is this like other people aren't critically, you know, they can't think critically. I can think critically. They need to be told what to do, blah, blah, blah. I'd like to tell people what to do. Right. But I think if you're smarter than that, you realize like telling people what to do isn't really. Like they're, that's they're, all we more, need to be doing. They're more dangerous because of their intelligence because they're average yeah. or slightly above average. Yeah. yeah. What's the quote? I forget who said it. Like the problem with the world is that the, the, uh, the stupid are so cocksure and the intelligent are so full of doubt. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I think that yeah. was in the bell curve too. Um, oh, probably. Probably. Yeah, I think Charles Murray said that. But it reminds me of the idea of being sophomoric where you go to a freshman or you're a university student and you finish your freshman year and all of a sudden you feel like you know so much. And I've had a lot of those experiences. I joined the military late so I have a lot of very young Marine Corps and Navy friends who got out and went to college and I'm on social media. I keep up with them in other ways. And I start to see them doing that where it's like, oh, I know this. And I thought, well, well, you know what, this, that, the other. It's like, I like that you're going to college. I like that you're doing these things. But bro, you need to slow it down a little bit because what you, that surface stuff can be intoxicating. And all of a sudden you think you know so much about the world. And um, I think it was Socrates who said, uh, the oracle told him he's the wisest person in Greece because he knows he knows nothing or he knows he's ignorant. Yeah. I think that it's almost like levels. You get to, a, you're ignorant and you know a little bit, you get dangerous. And then when you get to that point where you realize how much you don't know, that's when you really start to understand and open up to even more. You're reminding me of Carrie's coffee shop friends, right? In college who are like trying to school Carrie on the social justice tenets. Um, who, that you know, Carrie invented. <laughs> yeah, <she's, laughs> wait, we can blame her for these? Awesome. <laughs> That's not all your Mount, fault, Carter. <laughs> on Mount Sinai with a list of commandments. So I did bother to like grab my Google box and look up one quote when I heard it because it resonated so much with me because I think of your show and unsafe space and the knitters and kind of what the way that we push back. Um, it was the part where um, Montag went and spoke and went to Faber's house and he was talking about being a coward. It was Mr. Montag, you're looking at a coward. I saw the way things were going a long time back. I said, nothing. I'm one of the innocents who could have spoken up and out when no one would listen to the guilty, but I did not speak and thus became guilty myself. And when finally they set the structure to burn the books using the firemen, I grunted a few times and subsided. 
for there were no others grunting or yelling with me by then. Now it's too late. And I kind of feel like that is what we do when we go try to help people who are being silenced and um, mobbed and attacked. Mm -hmm. It's just standing up. And I just really appreciate your show because I think it does really empower people to say, I'm not going to be a coward. And I am going to stand up because it's felt like for so long, we've had to be coward, cowards and be quiet lest we be mobbed. I think one of the things that the mob is trying to convince you of, though, is that you're alone. And the truth is, you're not alone. A lot of people agree with you. And if you stand up and say something, it turns out that we're not actually in that dystopia yet where you go to jail or or whatever like you there are people who say, oh, I'm glad that Nicole said that because I feel the same way. Well, um, I mean, not in America, but there's definitely people who get visited by the cops and some people who go to jail sure. in England. Yep, that's true. So it's really I'm talking not America, but yeah. Like yeah. that unrealistic to think of where it could go. Um, and I know I get, you know, little secret whispers from the people in my neighborhood. We're like, I really like that you're outspoken, but yeah. I can't do that. I was, yeah. I was yeah. having a conversation with someone yesterday about how the fact, like once I started doing this show, people in the Bay area <laughs> where were like, come up to me that people that I knew, but I just thought were woke and following along with the woke religion. were like, don't tell anyone, but I voted for Trump. And I really <laughs> I, like, I sometimes listen to your show. I'm like, all right, I won't, I won't tell so anyone. Don't worry. Secret. Yeah. There's you can hate me. That it's are fine. Like, yeah. I'll definitely keep your secret, but that's maybe because there are so many people who like, tell me, I like what you say, but I can't like it. Um, maybe that's why this quote about cowards resonates with me because I know so many cowards. Yeah. Here's that happened to me too. Oh, sorry. Gary. Well, I was just going to say, in my, that's been happening to me since for a couple of years now, since I wrote my first essay about leaving my old belief system. But in a, on a positive note, a lot of those people who originally reached out to me and told me, and most of them were liberals, by the way, a couple of them were closeted Trump voters, but most of them were liberals, did not vote for Trump, were just saying, I really like your piece, but I'm too afraid to like it or share it to a T. Not all of them, but a lot of those people, the ones I was friends with, are now talking. They got mm. over their fear. It took them a while. That was, you know, it took, it took me a while, but um, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Probably a Sorry, gradual Carlin. process. Yeah. So, so, messages like that. They yeah, won't noticed on page fifty-five in that edition, they actually have the violent suppression of the dissidents. Of you know, surely you remember that boy in your own school class who's exceptionally bright, did the most reciting and answering while the others sat like so many leaden idols, hating him. And wasn't it this bright boy that you selected for beatings and tortures after hours? Of course it was. We must all be alike. No one, not everyone born free and equal, as the Constitution mm -hmm. says, but everyone made equal. Every Each man, the image of every other, then all are happy because there's no mountains to make them cower to judge themselves against. And yep. that actually echoes Harrison Bergeron of nobody prettier, nobody smarter, nobody faster, nobody stronger. Whereas at least the 
Fahrenheit 451, you've got the athletes, you've got the firemen. They don't hold anybody up as heroes, but you can still go excel. But this echoes that we have to pull everybody down to the same level. Nobody can escape. Nobody can get out. And if you're too much of a weirdo, we stick you in the institution or if you get beat up or if you get killed. Because the scene with the car where it almost hits Montag and he wonders if that car is the one that hit the girl that got him thinking. It's almost like, okay, the car's looking for the pedestrians to kill and it's looking for the weirdos to kill. Their society doesn't care or actively encourages the murder of the dissidents and says, well, that's their punishment for standing out from the crowd. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up, Tamara, because that passage actually bothered me a little bit in the sense that um, I don't think it's fiction. Like, and maybe this was just my experience growing up in schools in the U.S., but it seems to be universal of people I talk to. Um, it's not being the, quote, exceptionally bright kid um, is a way to get beat up. That's the way to get ostracized and shunned. And I hadn't realized the extent of it until I got into a conversation with my wife who grew up in China and she was like totally shocked by this culture because in China, the smart kid who gets the great grades is the most popular kid because he's the smart kid. Um, and here, I don't know if it's just my experience, but I think the opposite is true. Uh, it seems like if you're the, if you're the kid who's thinking and working hard and getting good grades and you're the quote exceptionally bright person that's the that's social suicide because you can't be exceptional they don't want exceptional people yeah but it's don't you think it's odd that in china it's the opposite that china is the country that i think of that's like uh it's communist like we're all the same uh you know it's it i, I think of it as a a very what's the cut down the tall poppy or whatever that that phrase is right um and yet odd. that's not their culture in school it it is odd but does that mean china is celebrating the the people who are more successful more likely to be successful i think so they're celebrating the meritocracy say you're going to be the best doctors you're going to be the best engineers use this for social benefit so if you're winning the wars, getting to the moon, getting to Mars, building dams, we're going to celebrate you as pulling everybody up. But and here, misfit, then they hammer you down. So as long as you're in a socially acceptable channel, you're doing great. But it, you know, in, the, in, in an American culture, it's, are you the homecoming queen? How pretty are you? And how good at, you know, Sports, sports. Mm -hmm. would, I think would find that bottom, bottom up and the top down that we talked about before because with China it's from the top down so they have some control over those people who are excelling because they can utilize them for the state here we're doing it to each other so for, maybe it's because <coughs> bottom up that those exceptional people are being pushed down because it's a lot harder to make people better than it is to keep them from excelling on the upside, it seems that here, if you are one of those people that does get bullied for being exceptionally smart, you tend to do a lot better than the homecoming queen and the quarterback the 20 years down the road. 
So it's not like it's something that you're like stuck with the rest of your life, that right. path, you know? It, it seemed to be like for a while the, the U.S. was going through this period where the geeks were actually the cool people. Like when iPhones come out, you know, I started thinking about, well, what's high school like 10, you know, now or 10 years ago? Um, I mean, I was a total nerd, became an engineer, whatever. Now it seems like the, the girls in high school recognize actually the nerds kind of run things. Nope, but, they don't. That's <laughs> It seems like we went through. I've had a lot no, of they don't. kids. That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. I thought nope. we went through a period where they, where that they people started to recognize that, and then we lost it. Like, yeah, no, I, Keith, I, I do believe there was so. a brief moment where that was true. And yeah, I was, think that I think that people from across, uh, I think kids are much more schooled in anti-bullying. So I think the ways that they bully each other is way more insidious than how we all grew up or, you know, various ones of us through the years. But I, you know, how does although it come I out? will say that I was at a, a homecoming game and a lot of kids now, a lot of high schools give um, homecoming royalty things to special kids, like with downs and, you know, that have actual afflictions. Some so it's almost like a, a performative non-bullying. So Nicole, how does the bullying manifest now? Because I don't like if, if they're more schooled in kind of don't do the old school stuff, how do they how do they bully now? Well, I mean, obviously the kids in school now have such a different reality because they never actually get to leave school. So, you know, with phones, you're in it all the time. So you can do a lot more online with bullying. Um, but I wouldn't, and I would agree that the, like the sort of, uh, ironclad strata of what it was for decades of, you know, jocks are on top and geeks are at the bottom and all that, um, has sort of blended a little bit, but I would say there's still, you know, might makes right kind of okay. mentality of high school boys and uh, and the, the pretty girls are popular sure could i jump in and take it back real quick to, Car to carlin had a comment that i wanted to make sure you got to say do you remember what it was oh yeah i was gonna say just in reference to um like people undercover saying i like what you're doing so i wore this hat at vogue like through vogue knitting live which is a huge knitting event with like thousands of women who like beat each other up over yarn and <laughs> i waited until like the last day of the conference to do it because i was like if they kick me out at least i'm gonna have done everything i wanted to do and i so i just walked up and down the marketplace wearing the hat not saying anything just doing my business almost every single aisle I went down, someone came up to me and was like, I love your hat. I think it's really great. I, I got no negative feedback, but just all. Wow. <laughs> That's they awesome. were on the down low kind of, right? Oh yeah. They're totally on the down low. It's <laughs> <laughs> interesting. I, I've got a Did question they read about the it book. Before they said it. I mean, like no. the, what your hat says is not, you wouldn't not think what you might be on the down low to say that, right? You shouldn't have to be on the down low to say well, Okay, but to put it in perspective, like the actual like femme bags that we make fun of, like those were on sale here. That's like the type of people. That... 
I feel like fembags on sale are worse than you know normal retail price fembags. That's pretty bad. Yeah. So funny because um, I only think of that in terms of humans now. So I can't even like in my brain think of what a fembag looks like. What what is a fembag? Um, I. Th- Threw up a little bit in my mouth when I saw it. To be honest, it was it's, it it's like purse? literally it's like it's like a purse, and they come in different sizes, and they say different social justicey things, and yeah. So oh, like oh it's, it's a handbag. Yeah, hand it's bag. like a, it's like a thing <laughs> for crafting. Yeah. Okay, so uh, yeah, I'm it up right now. I don't want to be the person taking us back to the booth. No, no, I want to go back to yeah, the yeah, booth, Carrie. Go ahead. Uh, it's so fine. I have yeah. So I had a couple notes. There's a few things I want to make sure. I wanted to talk about one was just um, the attitude towards children in this culture and the comments of Mildred's friends. Uh, the one who was saying like, you know, having kids is awful. I wouldn't have kids. And then the, and then there's one who has kids and you, I thought she's about to make a defense of having children, but instead she says, it's like putting laundry in the wash. <laughs> you just like put them in there and slam the door and it just, it just, after hearing them talk, Montag, who's been through this, who's, who's kind of waking up, I don't know, coming, he's becoming unwoke, I guess you could say, in a, an analogy, he calls them <laughs> monsters after that. And it just really stuck with me. I felt like that word was very appropriate. But anyway, I, I wanted to see what other people thought. It was that part about children. And then there was another part about kids. Oh, the part about the schools how the schools like if they're at home yeah do you guys know what part i'm talking about that's why we've lowered the kindergarten age year after year until now we're almost snatching them from the cradle which totally made me think of the governor of colorado and how he has now made uh pre-k free and then right after um put in a new curriculum for sex education like a pro-trans uh, curriculum for sex education starting at kindergarten up. Um, so, because that's what people are arguing here is like, why do you keep, you know, starting standardized and, school so much earlier and calling it free when we know it's not free for one? But in, in Florida, they're trying to get the nursery schools controlled by the government. Like they want to get the three and four year olds. Yeah. That's what it feels like. Yeah. Well, that, they want to start the indoctrination at age three. They don't, they're not willing to wait till age five now. Yeah. That's one of the common things in basically all of the, not only the dystopian novels really, but just all of the authoritarian flavors of government. It's like, they all, they all are afraid of children being raised in a family where they learn morals or values that aren't, uh, they, that may might not be in line with whatever the the values of the government are and that carrie you know that passage where you're talking about like throwing the it's like doing the laundry something that you know that was another thing that really impressed me about his ability to predict because i do feel like um it's not just what government services are available but it's the attitude towards children um and i think he kind of hit that attitude spot on i mean there are a lot of people who, who kids are like an accessory, they're an afterthought. We, we live in a culture now where you have children, but you're not really expected to actually raise them. You, you like, well, you, so many people are like, oh yeah, I'm gonna take off a few months. You know, I have birth, I'm gonna take off a few months during the, you know, right, right around birth. Uh, and then, you know, then I'm gonna throw them to some minimum wage work made wage worker and uh, go back to my career and I, I'll see them on the weekends and 
a little bit at night once in a while. Like there's no, if they're just like an accessory and I'm not going to, you know, I don't really feel like it's my job to raise them. They're just going to kind of get raised by people that I hire, um, which is kind of like doing the laundry. I think he nailed that. I think he really hit on uh, that attitude towards children. And I think that attitude towards children is, uh, it's something that you see time and time again in basically all of these dystopian novels is like, like the, the children are owned by the society or they're owned by the government. And it's up, up yeah. to the collective and the government to raise them. The line yeah. one I quoted is the home environment can undo a lot of what you try to do at school. Yeah, right. That's it. Yeah, that's well, why they want that. That's a great line. I highlighted that one. Like, but uh, the, a lot of people believe that. Yep. Well, that's like, that's like the story we highlighted recently, uh, of the, our friend in, uh, in Brooklyn, whose four-year-old is learning, you know, his his kid's preschool teacher sent home an email that's like 10 paragraphs long. And Car, Car and I did an episode on reading it. It's all this ideology they're teaching four-year-olds. And, um, and I was talking about it with a friend in Texas who said that, uh, you know, he was at a meeting of like four or five years ago, a while back, where they were openly discussing this as if it was a positive thing that they needed to get children before they reached the age of five, that if they got them by the age of four, they could change them. Like, and it, and it was just openly said in that way as if it's, if that's not like, why are you trying to program these kids? Now, right? one of the things that always bugs me about any of those programs. And I think the same thing, similar things happening in Seattle too, where they're changing the math curriculum as well. And it's all about power instead of addition and subtraction. And I always ask this question, they never answer it is, well, let's pretend that everything you wanna teach them is virtuous. Maybe we can wait until the reading and math scores are to grade level first, before we try to extend ourselves into all of these um, virtuous types of um, thought that you believe. And I can never get them to answer that question or um, explain why we should do that while we haven't even gotten the basics down yet. And I think it's because they don't value those basics anymore. Because if they would, they would at least maybe even back off a little bit and say, okay, well, maybe we should do that and if we can get up to par, but they don't care about those things. It's, I think it's that they value the indoctrination more than the basics. Yes. If you can have someone who thinks for themselves and knows that two plus two is four, uh, that is, uh, that's way worse than someone who doesn't think for themselves, adopts the ideology, but can't get two plus two right. right? Yeah. Uh, it's just, uh, it's a matter of what's important and what's not important. Um, I, I've got a question about something in the book that I'm, I'm wondering if any of you thought about. Why do you think Beattie was so knowledgeable? Um, I thought it was odd that like the the guy who is is Montag's boss, who I, I guess runs the station, seems to be really well read. They, why? They made, why is that? They made it clear that Beattie is well read. He presents this whole long string with I didn't recognize yeah. most of those quotes, right. but they're obviously quotes from like famous books right so why 
Well, the because... HBO movie actually like hits on this, and they they add parts where he like goes home at night and and writes himself on these little pieces of flash paper, and then he burns them at the end of the night because he feels so guilty about it. But did he's like a closet gay person, like back when? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like it's like the person who is, um, who's who is presenting. Like remember back when you would have these Republican politicians who were Mm -hmm. the most vocally anti-gay, who then would be caught in seek in their secret lives in these compromising situations. (laughs) I kind of thought of him like that. Like he's publicly like very against, and this is just one interpretation I had of him. But he's. You know, his whole job is to burn books and he thinks that knowledge is a dangerous thing, but secretly he can't stop from engaging in this thing that he pub- that he condemns. When, That's when interesting. Montauk- That's your interpretation. <laughs> when Montauk- my, my interpretation was the opposite. I kind of felt like he was, uh, he's one of these characters who's intentionally evil. Like in order to show he's evil, you have to understand that he knows what he's destroying and revels in it. Like if if he didn't really know, then he's somehow somewhat innocent. Like he's kind of just a cog in the wheel, but this guy knows what he's destroying and, and that makes him more evil. Well, but he's that's why he's himself. suicidal. Yeah, he's but destroying that's... himself. This is self-loathing. When yeah, Mon- that's why he lets himself get lit up because he knows. Yeah. He's, he, he's oh, like, interesting. he's trapped in this, in this life of, of knowing the books, of reading the books, but you know, it's only because um, Montag meets Faber that he even has any sort of way to even begin a community of that, you know? So the, you know, the fire chief probably has even less ways to, to bond with somebody over that. So that's why he, I mean, it says that Montag realizes that Beatty let him light him up. When yep. Montauk kills him, it's it's very clear. Montauk at least thinks that Beatty wanted to die. And yeah, it's like right. very well read. Like Beatty must have had like a whole freaking library. Like he quotes and quotes and quotes. So is that true? It's just Montauk's theory, but it appeared right to me that Beatty actually felt guilty and wanted to die. In the post sections in this copy, it talks about the evolution of the books and a lot of little details, one of which is like Montag is a paper company and Faber is a pencil company. And he didn't realize that till afterwards when he was selecting the names. But one of the other sections was when he was doing the initial manuscript, Beatty was talking about how he went through this crisis, that crisis, that crisis, and had all these books and the books did not solve the problem and he destroyed them and then signed up for to be one of the first firemen to destroy the books because it didn't help but if he's destroying the books he's destroying a source of unhappiness and division in society and solving the problems he's tearing down the statues he's burning the books and for him this is a way to make things better and get over the pain and then you're distracted by drugs, casual entertainment, TV shows, but at least you're feeling like you're doing something. But he was listed as being like 30, 31, and he was a liberal arts major who then turns around and becomes a fireman. Interesting. 
I wonder if it's self-loathing then. Yeah. Yeah, it's total self-loathing. Because right? he loves the books, I think. He's he's quoting Shakespeare and stuff. Yeah, like you said. But they failed him. Like tomorrow's saying like, yeah, he, he's angry about something and the books failed him and he's just taking it out on. Yeah. On well, because books. he's he's figured out about what like the walking library tells Montag at the end that the books themselves don't do anything. Yeah. But you doesn't know? he make a decent like point? Kind of like his character almost is the society's argument against books because when he goes in the first the woman that ends up dying who's in the library and he says like you've been locked up here for years with a regular damned tower of babel and he's making all these biblical references but he yeah. is kind of pointing out the inherent contradictions in literature but he misses that point he's saying look this is what happens when you examine all these ideas you're just confused and, and so he's kind of making the case, even though it's a little paradoxical, he's making the case for why it's a good thing to get rid of books and maybe even making somewhat of a, a good point, kind of, in a way, but... I find it interesting that you refer to him using all the biblical messages, thinking about what the word Israel means and what the hmm. people are supposed to do, which is wrestle with God. And yeah. he was doing that, which is wrestling with knowledge, wrestling with the um, with the manner in which the universe unfolds itself. So maybe his mistake is not understanding that the point is the journey, is the wrestling with, as opposed to getting you somewhere that is eternally blissful. And yes. what Montag represents to him too, Montag is like his unlived self because Montag is the one that's like, he's coming into this, this realization that he can think and he can have these ideas and Beatty's watching this and he knows what's going on. And it's like, he has to kill off that part of himself. Yes, I, li I like that interpretation. I, yeah. See, Montag is searching. And, and I think Beatty feels like I've searched and I've decided there's nothing out there. I've read all of this, I'm woke now, there's nothing more to learn. Yeah. And none of it helped me be happy and peaceful and content. And, and, it, and it takes me back to what Faber was saying. Um, uh, this was on page 78, 79, where he's like talking to Montag and he says, it's not the books, it's, it's what's in the books. It, he said, it's not the books that, at all that you're looking for. You can get it in old phonograph records, old motion pictures. You can get it in friends, look for it in nature, look for it in yourself. Books were only one type of receptacle where we stored a lot of the things that we were afraid we might forget. There's nothing magical in them at all. The magic is only in what the books say and how they stitch the patches of the universe together into one garment for us. Mm. That's That to me is like, it's, it's not about, I don't know, there, there's, something, there's something that I think Montag is searching for and he's on the right path as a searcher. That's like, it's not just about preserving the books themselves, it's about wisdom and if you want to read more into it about like meaning and purpose and um i think i think i think to Beatty, it's just um well i've read all these books and i know everything there is to know and i still don't feel meaning like that he's he's not on the right i think he was just on a path for knowledge maybe i'm probably I'm, I'm wildly speculating all that but it's like what's the difference between like just looking for knowledge and looking for meaning as it seems like Beatty decided that he's read all the books, he's read lots of books, he's very well read. He decided that society is better off if people don't have the books. 
Yeah. If they're just happy with the mindless entertainment and sex and drugs and rock and roll or whatever. Like probably because he's still miserable. And then he's just as suicidal as Mildred. He yeah. But that's why that's why he thinks society's better off, right? Because it didn't help him. Yeah. Right. I was surprised he's suicidal. That was a surprise to me that he was suicidal. Well, maybe he just wanted the conflict. Like maybe he saw Montag as uh, whoever, I forget who said it, uh, might've been the doc. Uh, like he saw himself in Montag and Montag was the kind of the questioning part of him. And he was, Montag was taking the road that Beatty didn't take, right? He was, instead yeah. of rejecting, he was going to explore more. And I maybe he just wanted it to, that conflict couldn't exist. One of them had to win. Like when the fire truck pulled up in front of Beatty's house, Montag was like, Oh shit, this is my house. And Beatty was like, Ha ha ha. I tried to warn you. I sent the hound. Right. Right. <laughs> like Beatty thought it was good. And and Mildred thought it was good. Yeah. Was fine with burning the house. Well, maybe. Yeah, but too. that was kind of the interesting thing about that character because following it along, it was like, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? And then he does that and he shows up to the house and you're like, oh, he's a bad guy. And I've sure. been led astray. But then the realization when Montag says, like, he realizes that Beatty wanted him to be killed, it sort of flips it again. Maybe, if that's true, right? That was Montag's theory. Yeah. I guess. It seems, oh, I, to it I totally right. buy it. But I also think, you know, I mean, Beatty didn't have any purpose in life. His only purpose was to destroy things. And I think, I mean, you know, think, <laughs> like a lot of what Jordan Peterson talks about, if you have no purpose, like you, you are, he's looking outside, he's looking for something external to provide him with that purpose rather than looking internally and finding it there. But wasn't his purpose to destroy knowledge and make everybody happy, make society better? But he's a burner, not a builder. He's a yeah, burner. I was going to say, I don't think he actually wants people to be happy. I think that's just his justification for his like self-loathing and anger. Like I think he would burn the books even if it, they didn't make other people happy because they made him miserable. Like they didn't solve his problems. But uh, there's a real nihilism to the fact that he's like in this process of making this case quoting literature and 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 defying his own existence i mean it's it's really it's, he was it is a really interesting dynamic like Beatty is the most well-read person in the whole book yeah yep. yeah totally. why is that i, I was like <laughs> what the fuck? With yeah it's so weird right oh, that's the thing that's so tragic he's still having this conversation like he needs to have he needs to be convinced himself of the merits of what he's saying you know like he's trying to convince himself. Yes. Yeah, yeah right. I could see that. I the could see that. that. Hitler was actually suicidal, but on his way down, he wanted to burn as much of the world as possible. So it's not necessarily that he got caught and he was like, oh, shit, I failed, so I'm not going to kill myself. But it was more like, I want the whole world to burn on my way to burning myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I... Like, maybe also, I mean, kind of Beatty's death also is the burning of an entire library, right? Because he, like, oh. Beatty's death is, oh. is itself the burning of a book, a bunch of books. Oh, I didn't think. Yeah. yeah. Memories, all the books are in their heads. So 
and right. mm. most well-read one. So that's the most. Oh, oh. oh so Montag. So Montag ends up burning the biggest library. Yeah. Not Carter. Not oh yeah. Wow. wow. Carter gets an A. Carter gets an A for being the most cynical person ever. <laughs> I excel at that course, Keith. Um, actually, speaking of cynicism, one thing that was interesting about the book, uh, the ending of the book to me was it wasn't clear whether we were supposed to be hopeful or um, depressed about what was going on. And I, it sounds, I think that was intentional, where it's like, we don't know, here, here comes another cycle. We don't know if mankind's going to learn yet. Um, what do people think about the ending? Well, having helpful. Tim Robbins read it to me, I totally teared up. I think this is a test to see what kind of person you are, half gla glass, half empty or not. <laughs> I, Carter, I bet you were depressed at the end, weren't you? I was hopeful. Who, me? <laughs> were you depressed no. or hopeful? I was very neutral at the end. I was okay. like, well, I wonder which way it's going to go. Okay. Well, it's, it, they definitely left it open, but I was hopeful. I thought it was hopeful. I, I thought it was hopeful in the sense that because I've got toddlers right now, I would love to be destitute in the woods with nothing to do but read books. <laughs> <laughs> the hope, the part that I think was hopeful for me was like, there were always going to be people that were going to pers persevere. And even if this time society didn't listen to them, there would be another cycle eventually. Like they would kind of always persevere. I did get that sense. In in the last scene, he's with all these like learned people. They're like, they wrote great books and they were professors of this and that and other great things. And they said great things like that's who he's with. And then the city gets like blown to shit. And now they're going to head to the city and they're with all these great people and they're going to like fix it. That's yeah, he has community for the first time in his life, really. The only book in the Bible that survived was, I think it was his, uh, Montag's mind, which was the book of Job, which is essentially just the book that says, hey, you know what? Life is suffering and sometimes it's randomly horrible. Um, so maybe that, in a sense, is kind of telling us um, what we should think about the ending, which is, it's a cycle. There's always going to be suffering. There's some good within it and you can focus on that good, but it's always going to be some kind of a cycle. Wait, I Except thought he was he, the book of Ecclesiastes. Yeah, yeah. That's what he said. That was his book, Ecclesiastes. Yeah, and then is, I assumed that the whole like a, a season for everything thing was from that book. Does anybody know what Ecclesiastes is? Carrie, you're I a think, new oh, resident. Gosh, no. I think scholar. Ecclesiastes, no, but I think you're right. I'm not a scholar on this at all. I think you're right. I think that the part about the seasons is from that book. Yeah, what? it is. Yeah, so, this is why I cried. Three, I think. Three, three. Why, that, why that book? That's what I'm curious. Why Ecclesiastes? Because that's where there's, you know, there's a season to, what is it? A season of plant, a season, or a season to sow, a season to reap. For everything, Isn't there's a time, there? blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the Phoenix. It's it's constantly. The Phoenix, I know. Just, just to be for, for you, I know absolutely nothing about the Bible. <laughs> so I didn't get that. I didn't, I didn't know what that meant. Oh, well, well that's where yeah. Tim Robbins made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wasn't Ecclesiastes was King Solomon's book, right? 
Yeah, Ecclesiastes is very existential, and it's known for its like almost like nihilism in some senses. It's everything is meaningless. It's 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 one that really contemplates meaning. Um, in my at least limited knowledge of it, having read it, but yeah, it, it doesn't I, I also have it's... like a lot of. Uh, I feel like it also has a lot of like quotable one-liner type things in Ecclesiastes. It's not. Like, quote um, one, then. I don't Which remember. Do you You're the one that read the Bible seven times. I did read the Bible seven times, but I've that was a long time ago. <laughs> well, so, so I could tell from reading it that that was significant, like that mattered, but I had no idea what it meant. It, it, well, it like, was nothing. Hmm. Tamara. Um, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time yes. to reap, a time to sow. And you also had the Phoenix discussion earlier on, and then the main city has been burned. And now the guys are, the hobos are headed on to the next city or the next town, possibly to restart the cycle of knowledge. So it's a way of saying, okay, we're starting the new season and the new cycle. Montag is free of, everybody assumes he's dead. He's part of the group that's going to rebuild society or at least spread the knowledge again. So it's the end of the new season and after the burning, they're coming up out of the ashes. So I don't remember the full verses. I, I timed it. They had a Beatles song on it. Yeah, right? was, that's all I keep thinking too. <laughs> so uh, Laura what, was, was chat, it, uh, uh, can I interrupt Carter? Beatles? Laura, no, Laura no, no. in chat, Laura Higgins, yeah. who knows Ecclesiastes and who um, shared a quote, which I think is, uh, uh, which I think is relevant is the thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Mm. You know, when, when Thomas, when you were talking about ancient wisdom earlier, and Carrie, you asked, you know, why, you know, are we going to learn? Because we've, we've done all this before. I was thinking about, um, so there's some belief systems and the one in which I subscribe to, it's not religious, but it's spiritual, which say that like, we're, we all are spiritual beings that come from God. And we make the choice to come here to have this human experience. But part of that choice is that we forget every other time we've been here or have been somewhere else having a different experience, because part of the fun is you have to figure it out again. You have to, you have to, you have to go through all the trials. You have to go through all the pains to figure out whatever it is you're here to learn, whatever it is you're here to experience. And I was thinking about that and, you know, will we ever learn? Well, people who exist now, like cancel culture and all this stuff, they didn't actually live through any major civil rights movements in a way that they can remember. Right. Really the right. last mm. big one was like when I was in high school, which was, you know, I remember fighting for gay marriage, but really there hasn't been anything else since then on that scale. Don't tell them that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so they really, I mean, they don't remember what it was like when legitimately people did not have the same rights. Yeah. Um, That's a really good point. Correction. The book of Job is what Faber read in Montauk's ear as he fell asleep. Oh, oh. Like which that. makes sense why Faber would pick that to read to Montag while he's falling asleep because... It's about suffering, <laughs> yeah, and perseverance specifically. But okay. then one would hope that Montag re remembers it because Faber told him that things whispered to you in your sleep, you remember. So maybe he brings that book with him. 
Yeah. Uh, there's a part that I felt was pretty important uh, because he, it was a bulleted list by Faber and uh, it kind of summed up, I thought, what it is that he, basically what he was saying we need or maybe what Bradbury is saying is the antidote to this part of human nature that we keep repeating throughout history. And he was, it was that list he gave of what we need. He said, one, we need quality and texture of information. Two, we need the leisure to digest it. And three, we need the right to carry out actions based on what we learn from the first two. And I was wondering what, if people had any thoughts about what, where we're at in culture at the moment as it relates to that list. What I page actually is that, feel like we have too much leisure. <laughs> That's the problem with everybody no. having to pick up a fight because it's, we have too much time. But I almost feel like he says in the book, wait, uh, let's see what page this is on. Page 80, this is on page like 79 through page 81. See, cause Montag says that he says uh, the second, so on page 80 and the second thing we need Montag asks, leisure. And Montag says, oh, but we have plenty of off hours. And he says, off hours, yes, but time to think. If you're not driving 100 miles an hour at a clip where you can't think of anything else but the danger, then you're playing some game or sitting in some room where you can't argue with the four-wall televisor. Why? The televisor is real. It's immediate. It has dimension. It tells you what to think. And it blasts it in. It must be right. It seems so right. It rushes you on so quickly to its own conclusions, your mind hasn't the time to protest what nonsense and this made me think mm. of what you're saying on the one hand i agree we have nothing but leisure time in some ways that's why people pick up these silly social justice fights and they're looking for because they have nothing to really struggle against but at the same time all this technology that we have in this culture has made it so that we don't have leisure time to think like when's the last time you just spent a day like sitting in a hammock thinking about the life and like the purpose of life, we're always on these things. These freaking devices are constantly blinking and, oh, what is, what notifications? Yeah, what do I have? What did this person say? What did that person say? And yeah. it's, it's this really like everything is speeding up. We have leisure time, but we, it's almost like we don't take the kind of leisure time he's talking about, the leisure time to digest things. We don't think in the big uh, we don't think about the meta stuff as much anymore. It's just a little minor. The news cycle so fast, you know? What just happened I, today? What happened today? I think you the know? word leisure isn't really appropriate here. Maybe it was used differently back then. I don't know. But like, it's not really leisure that he talks. He, he says leisure time, but he's not talking about leisure time. He's talking about alone time, quiet time, contemplative time. That's what he's talking about. Yes, like not time where you sit back and get entertained. Like leisure, leisure time is not at a party with 25 people everybody <laughs> yelling. Right. And it's not watching the Super Bowl either. It's quiet. Oh, yeah. And it's that, contemplative time. Right. I thought that was funny. You're like, this is better than football. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, and I thought, oh, I thought the Super Bowl was in the afternoon. Is it in the evening? Yeah, I actually thought it was thought over too. already, but apparently it's not. Nicole said it was going on. Yeah, no, it's 20 to 10. I heard yeah. a little while ago it started at 6.30 or 7 or something. Yeah, I, I was, was expecting in the afternoon. it to be in the afternoon, too. So it, all these people here are doing this rather than watching the Super Bowl. Yeah. Get it's on, on mute in the background. So, 
Is that a sign? So I know that's, some an, people... that's like another little side sign of who's here. So I, I know some people who, um, who go on, I was, I had reason to think of this the other day. I have a friend, my old business partner, who you know, Carter, mm -hmm. at the end of the year, she has a ritual. She goes to this retreat in Thailand every year. It's like a two week silent retreat. And all you do is meditate in silence. You're not even supposed to read books. Actually, you're just What's supposed to, why do you need supposed to, to meditate and, and be, be in silence. And there's, I mean, it's a beautiful location and you can kayak and you're in nature and you're doing yoga and you're just eating healthy foods and that's it, but you don't speak. And you're just, you're just meditating and you're being contemplative. And I think that there are going to be more, I think that in the future, people are going to pay a premium to go to a hotel where you're just in a room with no, like no electronics will work. <laughs> you know, you go there just to get away. But, and I think people will pay I, for that. I, I feel like that's a first world problem. Like if you have a slight <laughs> amount of self-discipline, you just, but like, I have that every country. week. Yeah, I have time yeah. every week. I just don't answer texts from you. My point is that's what, but that's the culture we're living in. People are going to pay for that more and more because they don't, it is a first world problem. That's the kind of problems we have. Carrie, is uh -huh. this a business proposition? <laughs> this, this is Carrie's pitch. Who wants to invest? Well, it's I mean, the Faraday are, Hotel. Those is things are step in, nothing works. Yeah. Like we it's, have to all get together and pick a spot and we all meet and then we don't talk. Yeah, yeah. is this what yeah, our safe, unsafe space meetup's gonna be? Yes, yes. We're <laughs> we gonna meet to in a cave together. underground with no internet access, no cell phone access, and Carrie is going to- Put on ball gags. Uh, Carrie's gonna make duct tape Carrie, over oh. it once more. Carrie's gonna make sure we don't talk to each other. We're just gonna meditate. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, I, any thoughts on that really? list? Any more thoughts on that? I'm sorry, I, I, monopol I was uh, monopolizing the conversation on that, but the, about the, about the list, like where yeah. are we at right now? Like, we, what do you mean by where are we? Where are we? What page is it, Carrie? On 81, at the top of 81 in this copy, there's like a good summary. He says, uh, one is quality of information, two is leisure time, which we just talked about, and three is the right to carry, carry out actions based on what we learn from the interaction of the first two. I believe in the right to carry. Carrie, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I just want to, can you clarify your question when you say where are we in this? What do you mean by that so that well, we can answer I guess better. I mean uh, in the way that we talked about at the very beginning of our discussion about how this book is kind of... Um, it's almost as if he had a crystal ball and was looking into the future and, and predicting where we might end up in some ways. I think he accurately predicted that um, we have a lot of information, but is it, but is it high quality? Is it high texture? I don't think so. Not a lot of it. Um, on the other hand, I think we're hungry for that. And that's why you see long form podcasts are becoming more popular discussions. These two people interviews like Dave Rubin does, um, mm -hmm. That's why Colette is becoming popular because it's long form, thoughtful essays, um, because people are hungry for it because so much of the information we have, I think he's right, it's not quality. And then and number two, the leisure to digest it. Well, like I was just saying, we have a lot of quote leisure time, but I don't think we have in this culture, we don't make time for, for the time you're talking about that you say that you do, but most people don't contemplative time where they're sitting and they're turning off devices and they're contemplating right. things and they're thinking right. about big picture things. And, 
this this idea of um, that we've talked about in conversations recently about maybe setting aside a day a week to do that, like maybe that's what the Sabbath is for, or you know, having mm-hmm. a day where you're just digesting quality information. I think that people okay. are hungry for that. All right. Well, I'll, I'll okay. Then I'll then I'll take a stab at answering your question if okay. if no one else wants to. Um, I I agree with you. We don't have well. I don't know that we've ever had a lot of quality of information. Um, because we don't really know who was doing the filtering. Now we certainly have quantity. We have access to all information um, now, but we but we are also lacking quality filters on that information that are that are useful, right? So it's we got a lot of information, but figuring out which which is quality is is difficult, and it's a challenge we talked about the other day. Um, I agree with you on le- we just had a leisure time discussion. Um, do we have the right to carry out actions based on that? Increasingly, no. Um, increasingly, we've been we're being pressured socially to to agree with the the crowd and the mob, and and we don't actually have the ability to act on that. I think there's actually something missing from this, though, that he didn't mention in this book, which is you need the cognitive apparatus to not have been destroyed so that you can actually have the first two interact with each other. And if you indoctrinate children, and you if you spend 20 years of their youth, destroying their ability to introspect, critically think, think logically, understand rational argument, then you can have lots of information and you can have time to digest it, but the wheels are broken. So the interaction between those two things actually is never going to lead to the, the actions that it should. Um, that's where I think we are right now. I think our, our mechanism is broken. I agree with you on the first two, and I think we're losing the third. I don't know. Anyone else have an opinion on that one? Yeah, I think on the quality of information, I think we still have very good quality of information. It's just not coming to us from the popular channels because we obviously here meeting and other people we interact with are going to that quality information. I see it on the bookshelves behind you, Carter. Often I see it behind you, Carrie. So the information is there. It's just not necessarily... um, through those media channels that we used to be able to get at least decent information from. It's hard to find, right? Because it's, there's so much information that for a lot of people, I think the volume is, it's um, overwhelming to figure out, well, which part, what of, of all this stuff, what should I consume, right? Yeah. Well, the, the ideology, as far as the texture of information, the ideology itself that we are all pushing back against is an ideology that in and of itself, the unsafe space is the space in which we can have the conversation that is verboten, the nuance that is verboten to find this middle ground and find that texture, um, which is just not allowed by an ever growing list of rules of questions you're not allowed to ask. And um, you know all of these <laughs> rules that are growing all the time. We need that struggle. I like the way you put that. So you're basically, (laughs) partly because it makes us sound good, but you're basically saying the unsafe space is like, what we're trying to do is give space to to have those first two interact with each other in a way that we're allowed, we can do that without being criticized and, or at least in this space, we're allowed to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Gracie points out on, so Gracie disagrees with me on something in chat, and I think it's worth pointing out. She says, I think you underestimate children's ability to overcome indoctrination. Think of your own experience. And she's right. I, I was 
indoctrinated, although differently. Um, and I did overcome it. Um, but I don't know that that's, uh, I don't know that everyone does overcome it. I don't, I think it certainly makes it a lot more difficult. That's why you indoctrinate because it's very difficult to overcome. I don't know. I think right now with the indoctrination for very small children, a bigger issue is the ever reaching power of the state to decide, um, in my big concern is like a trans issue with small children. So they're um, ever reaching into protecting children from their parents. So they indoctrinate into this idea that you can choose your own gender very, very young. And then say, you know, in fourth grade, now there's people, now there's schools that are, and teachers that are like, well, we think this kid is trans and the parents are against it. And then it turns into, you know, the state telling you that you have to support your kid being trans, even when it, you know, could be a phase or it could be of that indoctrination. I mean, I'm really scared of it. I have a three-year-old who goes to public pre-K and I really don't want them talking about that stuff with her because right now it's like on any day of the week, she could be like, um, you're Rapunzel and I'm Flynn, Flynn Rider. And she acts out the Flynn Rider part. Right. And I'm like, okay, don't do that at school. Cause you know, <laughs> right. they'll, they'll tell you you're a boy. Yeah. I, I mean, although, although, I mean, I, so I agree. I mean, you know, my opinion on the state, so I'm right there with you, Nicole, but uh, I do, I do think that there's something really truthful about what Ray Bradbury was saying. Um, earlier which we we mentioned which is like this doesn't come from the government top down this does come from like it's the culture that like the government didn't just waltz in and decide hey let's talk about trans rights there was a there's a culture first that happened and we're not part of that culture but it there is a culture where that grew and that culture happens to be uh standard in the cathedral and academia and uh, the media. So that's why, that's why this is what we're seeing, but it's not the government, the government didn't think of it on its own, I guess is my only point there. I totally agree. And I find the, the moms even more frightening than the teachers. I think the teachers and the administration get their power from moms, other moms pushing this in their like virtue signaling thing to get online, you know, likes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Tamara? Something I noticed, and this is probably from my religious background, they have the white clown who is a modified, watered down, lovey dovey, Jesus type character, including though he does have, oh, won't you love to buy these things from our sponsors? And it reminds me of Ellie Talker or the Shack of saying, we're going to water down Christianity, appropriate it, and say, we're love. We love you. I love you. We're all family. And there's no suffering. There's no discomfort. There's no judgment. Nothing's wrong. We're love. I love you. And then one of the poignant scenes for me is where she, Mildred almost commits suicide or almost dies from an overdose. You insert your interpretation here. And her husband's saying, you know, you know, she just wants to watch TV. I don't feel about this. 
don't watch this. Does the white clown love you? It's like, well, I'm just sitting here basking in the friendly glow, and that's my substitute for religion. Uh, and then the I, and we've seen some of this in our own society and culture of, don't tell anybody anything is wrong. We're going to totally accept you no matter what you do. And if you want to, if you like it, it's good. And if it makes you feel bad, it's bad. And to feel bad is bad. So we can't ever say these things are wrong, these actions are wrong, these beliefs are bad. We're just going to cover it all in a warm, fuzzy blanket and call that religion. And isn't it great? Because here's the boob tube telling you what is happy, warm, and it's not even a prosperity gospel. It's we're in love and you're loved and we're good and everything contrary is bad. So whether it's fundamentalist Christianity saying this is true, this is not, this is bad, this is good. Ooh, you're an evil judger or don't make me think, don't make me question anything. You're making me feel stupid. You're making me feel crazy. You're making me feel doubt. It's a return to the tribal morality, and it's a return to the, you know, if it feels good, it is good. If it feels bad, it is bad. So it's morally wrong to let anybody feel stupid, ignorant, or bad. So that's why they were tearing down the smart kid in the class, and that's why they're destroying the books, and why they don't care if they accidentally burn the old lady with the books. It's, let's have everybody happy, let's have everybody loved, even if it's a shallow thing, because that is considered moral. I like that you use the phrase appropriation of the church, because I have a lot of friends who are Christian and or progressive, and it seems like there's a huge battle going on with um, a lot of churches. And I think there's even been a split lately um, to where it seems like they're doing much of what you said, where they're starting to not just infiltrate the workspace where I have to go to different gender diversity type trainings, but it seems like it's getting into the church now. And it's exactly what you're saying to where if um, the religion they believe should be only accepting everything regardless of what. So our, our arms are open and that's, it sounds so nice, but you have to be you have to discriminate against some things. You have to have some kind of discernment. You have to have some kind of definition because if you don't define what you are for and or against, well, I guess you have to define what you're against if you're for anything because to be for something is to be against something else. So it, it's exactly what it sounds like what you're saying, Tamara. Yeah. It's like trying to, it, you made me think, uh, Tamara, of the, I couldn't find it, but the part where he, I think it's favors talking about this culture, what it's come, become so watered down that we're trying to grow flowers out of flowers that, that you said, you know, no, that bad is bad. If you feel bad, it's bad. Nobody can feel bad. Right. And this idea that um, it's just, it, he's, it's just flowers and fireworks constantly. And, and that we think we can get rid of the, the things needed to like, there's a cycle. You know, you can't have flowers without rot, without things dying, without that. You can't have the good without the bad. Um, which goes back, know. which goes back Go to the very end, the um, the scripture that they're quoting about a season for everything. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it also as you guys are speaking it um it really reminded me of how um you treat really tiny i mean some people treat really really tiny children right it's it's a very um it's a pretty pathetic view of of mankind when you look at humans and you say we can't ever let them feel bad i mean how fragile do you have to the your, your view of humans is that they're so pathetic and so fragile that you've got to pad everything and make sure that no one ever feels bad about anything ever um and it's it's uh it's ironic because that's what leads to getting that's what leads to being burned with your books right it's that like that same mentality of never hurting anyone's feelings actually kills people well and it's not even just that you're preventing them from feeling bad you're preventing them from feeling anything because do you know what happiness feels like if you've never felt sad yes that's a good point and and i it's like uh I think most of the, the drugs that people take to suppress uh, like antidepressants and that kind of thing, they generally are just numbing drugs. Like you, if you suppress one emotion, you suppress all of your emotions. And so um, you kind of have, this is the other thing, right? This is why ultimately um, Montag is not happy with, like he doesn't want to sit in the, the room with four walls TV or three wall TVs, right? Because you know, his wife is not really happy. She's, she's, uh, she's in like a nice little cage. She's like content enough, almost like a caged animal. Like she's pacified, but she's not really, she doesn't really have the meaning that he's kind of, he's looking for something to make him fulfilled and satisfied and meaning. And she doesn't really have that, but she also doesn't have the angst that he has either. She's kind of, just has neither thing. She's just got kind of this placid little Barely exists. life. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that the one part where they brought up abortion and how many abortions, I, was it the, the wife's friend had had, yep. you know, as he's kind of railing against them. Um, I don't know. It just, it really struck me because it hadn't been brought up really before like when he discussed wanting to have kids and his wife not wanting to have kids. It wasn't like it was laid out. Like, so she just ran out and got an abortion and it was just sort of laid in there very quietly in the midst of it. I was surprised. Cause it was like 1952 that like surprised me. The woman had 18 abortions or something. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, a ridiculous amount. Ridiculous amount. So we are uh, approaching two hours and I think we should wrap it up soon so people can go, but um, maybe we should do some like final thoughts about it. I had a, um, I had one final thing note that I had written down about how it was a quote about um, from Faber about how he says the whole culture shot through the skeleton needs melting and reshaping. And, and then at the end, when he's with the, uh, the bums, the, li the walking library, the living library, um, and one of them is talking about how um, they just have to wait for the war to happen. And then after the war's over, try and rebuild. And 
And I was thinking, it made me think of the people, we've been meaning to talk about this on the podcast, but the people who are call, call themselves the accelerationists in society right now, who believe that we the are- The collapsitarian types, is that what you're, yeah. Yes, okay. the collapsitarians. They believe we're heading towards a cultural collapse and they want to speed it up so we can get to the rebuilding, which is kind of a crazy idea to me. I think we're going to collapse. Let's go in. But uh, did, did you guys have any thoughts about that? About um, did, does culture reach a point in which, is there a way to pull back? Or is it that the whole skeleton, the whole culture shot through and it needs, do you reach a point at which it needs to collapse and rebuild? So far, I don't know of any culture that, what's the longest culture that, or civilization that has survived? I, I you know, I'm not a historian, but I can't think of any civilization or culture that hasn't expired yet. And is that just the fate of all cultures and civilizations? I don't want to yeah. think, and I, I hope not, because I think we've got a good thing going for a lot of other, a lot of good reasons. But our, I, I, I guess it would have to be hopeful in the sense that we would be the first. And, was, and does our technology like accelerate it? Accelerate the collapse? Whereas like, if you looked at the Roman empire, how many hundreds of years it took to, to fully yeah, yeah, collapse yeah. that, or I don't even know, like the Egyptian empire, those, you know, but now that we have the ability to be constantly in each other's faces and in each other's brains, is it just going to accelerate how quickly? It could, although, I mean, I know I'm not usually the optimist, but technology <laughs> could be the thing that allows us to avert the collapse. Um, because we can have conversations like this. None of us are in the same city or town. Um, and we can have conversations like this um, that were totally impossible before. So, I mean, maybe there's a way to avert it. I mean, I, I, I'm i usually not this optimistic. I, I but... wouldn't have expected you to be the one. Like, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm more not... expect like the next book instead of Edwin Gibbon. The next book would be The Decline and Fall of the American Empire by Carter Lauren. Yeah, well, look, I mean, the, what, the average lifespan is 250 years. I think we've, we, we are, I mean, the truth is we've got like almost all of the markers for a declining empire. Um, we've, ex we've exceeded it, right? We've exceeded the average. Yeah, and, and just like the cultural markers for what we're, I mean, the Super Bowl going on is, is one of the cultural markers. Like the obsession with entertainment and worship of sports figures is like, is part of the decline boring. of an empire. So, boring. like, boring. Renatus is boring. I say, <laughs> right. boring. So, boring. Howdy. Oh, Hi. this is Renata. She's the reason I missed the last book club. Oh. Hi, Renata. Nice to we forgive you. <laughs> Thanks for joining <laughs> us. She's, she's been listening. Yeah, she's listening to all this. She never heard of Fahrenheit 451 or 1984. I haven't. Oh, wow. I'm from South Africa. I have, a, I have a whole different viewpoint on problems and issues. She's been listening though and commenting. Listening. That's why I've been muting, but she's been commenting or in <laughs> comments. Yeah, that's somebody that uh, spent 35 years in South Africa. So she has a slightly different opinion on some things. I do like what I listen, what I hear. I, I like what I hear. Are on we, the uh, side, we'll be able to find each other when it all goes to shit because of technology, <laughs> right? Unless they shut the whole thing down. At least we found each other. I'm a NC2 KXB. That's my ham handle. That's what I need to get. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. Some kind of way to move. Like, if, if, if 
all, if uh, the shit hits the fan, like we all go to one central location and bring a bunch of books. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Gul- is it's it going to be Gul- Gulch? We're going to Carter's Gulch. Uh, I, you know what? I, I vote for Texas too. When are you gonna- I think we have to head for Carrie. Yeah, definitely don't come to California. This is where we'll we'll be Round zero. We'll have an NPC factory <laughs> pumping people out here. That's not that's not, no, not California. I said go to South Africa when everything goes bad. No one is gonna notice where South Africa is. Just go there. <laughs> I don't, all I can say is and Carter knows, don't go to the Democrats people People's Republic of New Jersey. Yeah, don't go to New Jersey. Um you I will can't say come to my house. I'm in Boulder County. Oh geez! Oh, I'll no. make a vote for for the mountains in North Carolina, which is where I'm at. Woo, yes. North okay, Carolina. that's a good one. Okay. By the way, this conversation is why the Libertarian Party's attempt to have the Free State Project completely failed. <laughs> and you were ready to move to New Hampshire for a second, right? Didn't right. you go visit it? <laughs> yeah, but remember everyone you? wanted to move somewhere else. Yeah. I remember you. Hey, going you should visit. come to New Hampshire. New Hampshire's beautiful. We have all the politicians here right now it's great <laughs> lovely <laughs> lovely well, all right i have to go pick up yeah. a kid from uh, a movie the score is now 23 20 chiefs wow oh. who's the chiefs the chiefs with their racist mascot <laughs> <laughs> well we were we were just discussing a minute ago uh neither of us have any idea who's playing in the super bowl but I guess the chief mm. one of them. The chief, I'm pulling for the chiefs. Okay, any final thoughts? Goodbye, Nicole. I want to make sure we say goodbye that people have to go. Thank you, guys. Oh. Bye. I love okay. it. Thanks, Nicole. Looking forward to the next one. Bye, Take care. Um, well, thank Well, if nobody has any closing thoughts on the book, Carter, should we wrap it up? Wrap it up? I think so, although I'm, I'm going to do another crazy, crazy thing, Carrie. I'm okay. going to agree with some people that the ending is a little bit more positive, so Keith can um, cool. fall over in his chair. It does say at the end, the part of Ecclesiastes that he quotes says, um, and on the either side of the river, there was a tree of life, which bare 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Yes, thought Montag. That's the one I'll save for noon, for noon, when we reach the city. So when we reach a positive the- ending. When yeah. we reach the city. I think it's positive. Yeah. It almost made me cry too. It's yeah. beautiful. It's positive. beautiful. It's positive. Yeah. Well, thank well, you. Well, thank all. you guys all for joining us um, for book club. This was a lot of fun. Uh, we'll pick another book. I think we'll probably go back to nonfiction, um, and it's likely going to be the madness of crowds, uh, based on my conversations with Carrie. I don't. I don't. I don't know that she even wants to do a poll. I think we both really no. want to do madness of crowds. So. Uh, it's probably what it's going to be, but we'll pick a date. And um, yeah, thanks everyone for joining. And uh, we'll see you tomorrow for Kofefi or whatever. Thanks. Thank you guys. It was awesome. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks, Keith. Bye, Carlin. Bye, Chris. Bye, Bye, guys. Goodbye, Carter. See you later.